Well, if you would, take your Bible this morning, turn to Joshua 23. Joshua 23, we are nearing closer and closer to the end of our study in the book of Joshua. And this morning we're going to be discussing in Joshua's farewell address the reality of these last two chapters that Joshua speaks to the people, calls to them and desires for them to to hear and listen to all the things that the Lord had called them to do. And really, as we think about the life of Joshua and we think about the uh, the totality of his ministry in and amongst the life of the people of Israel, having served with Joshua, now having re- uh, served with Moses, having replaced uh, Moses as the leader in the conquest, now have being risen to the surface by God himself saying that people will know the fame of you. It ought to strike you as somewhat remarkable that the life and ministry of a person like Joshua, that he never allowed it to go to his head. You don't get to Joshua's farewell address and then he turns to try to get your attention back on himself. You'll notice this deliberate, intentional effort to say, it's not about me being old and leaving you. God will raise up someone else. It's about you and I being faithful to the living God. And that was the same exact message that Joshua uh, wanted his people to, wanted the people of God to remember. Leaving a legacy is uh, when we think about the importance of this in, in our own personal lives. The legacy that we leave behind is not about who we are and what we've done, how many people we knew, or how many businesses we started, or how many ministries we happen to be in. Or, or ways in which God used us in remarkable, uh, to do remarkable things in ways God didn't use other people. The legacy you and I leave behind must be a story of the faithfulness of God and your devotion and loyalty and godliness to him. Joshua was this kind of man. On a recent trip that I was speaking in Buffalo, New York, uh, we were housed in a particular hotel that was, a, was, uh, that was owned by a very prominent philanthropist who oh, from years and years in the, in the Buffalo area had now been known by giving to all kinds of charities and all kinds of uh, different uh, stadiums and non, uh, non-profit organizations and charities. And you can only imagine, well, you, uh, as we walked into Uh, this particular hotel, of which the gentleman was still living uh, in the hotel at at over 90-some years old, and Italian background, working hard, you'll still see him there waiting on tables of people at the restaurant. And yet what struck me as so remarkable is that in every place that you would look, in every corner of that building, every elevator ride, every, uh, there, there was a glassed emphasis as you walked down the hallway of all of his achievements, of all of his accolades, of all of the ways of things that he uh, had, had donated to people, in a sense of all the, 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 the presidents and former presidents that he had met. And everywhere you went, you could not escape the gaze of this person in the picture. In fact, some of the times I think, I think he's looking at me. He was everywhere. 
His legacy was bound up in material things in a philanthropist kind of way so that when people would see him, even at the later stage of his life, they would be drawn to all that he himself had done. There was no greater epitome of this than on one wall where there was a plaque that stated this. And it was a line from a song, but he, he really wanted to make sure that everybody understood this. The quote said, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world and I did it my way. So often our legacy and our pursuit in this life could be tempted to be doing things our way. As, you wrap, as we continue to come to the conclusion of the book of Joshua, Joshua as a leader and as a godly man who sacrificed his life to serve the Lord to guide the people, to be a mouthpiece of the living God, would say everything opposite than I did it my way. Leaving a godly legacy would mean that we are devoted and loyal to saying, we're gonna do it his way. There is no other way to live the life that we live here on earth than to be devoted to doing it his way. If I come to your house and I see a plaque like that, I'm gonna think, we need a meeting. We need to talk because this life cannot be about you. It cannot be about me. It cannot be, be about a particular assembly. It cannot be about the chapel. Only to the degree in which the, in which the places we serve, the people that we minister alongside, that we, we are devoted together to do it his way, to honor him, to glorify him. That is the only way life makes any sense at all. I know that's not the message that the world is often feeding us on a regular basis and giving to our children. Here in Joshua 23 and 24, as Joshua gives his farewell address, after a life devoted to this kind of obedience and faithfulness, it was his desire to leave behind a written work by the sovereign hand of God to remind the people of Israel don't do it any other way than God's way. You know what it looks like when you serve another God. You know what it looks like to go your own way. Moses left the first five books on his departure as part of a legacy that God had called him to do to guide and direct the people of Israel. And in a similar way, Joshua, authoring this book, would leave behind a history of the redemptive work of God's hand in an appeal for them to always remember, follow the Lord at all costs, no matter what, no matter if no one else is going to do it, you must do this. He calls us to this. I'm so thankful for a level of family heritage on my grandma's side at 96 before she passed away. Uh, she was very much into studying the history of our family and coming to realize the long line of pastoral ministry on my, uh, on my grandma's side where I have great, 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 great uh, 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 grandpas who were pastors throughout the years that will be traced back. One of which my great, great, great grandpa who my mother has his his uh, Bibles his, that he would put in his saddlebags because he was a circuit-riding preacher across 
uh, this particular country. Picking up those Bibles, looking at them, recognizing that there was a legacy and understanding that these men who were connected with me that I had not known and did not fully appreciate, but to realize these men served the living God that I serve. They preached that word in which I preach each and every Sunday, living a life seeking to be devoted at all cost. Remembering my grandma at 96 who had her mental capabilities all the way, all the way until the point that she was gone would often, as I would visit her, encourage me in pastoral ministry. And in her departure before she had died, uh, she left me this that she had written for me, knowing I, God had called me into pastoral ministry. And she wrote this poem to me, of which sits on my desk, and I, and I see it each and every week. She said, the title of it was, Go Preach. Many have passed this way before to follow God's holy plan. Go, preach the word, my son, and so meet the need of man. The charge is yours to preach the word in season and out with great patience and careful instruction. Fight the good fight of faith, my son. Be joyful and always pray that you may be found blameless on that coming day. Look not to self or comforts of life. Go preach his word without fear. For God will bless as souls confess of the joy that is theirs to possess. Someday he'll say, well done, my son, as true to his word you have been. Each and every week as I prepare for sermons, I often will look across my desk and sitting there and looking at this and remembering my 96-year-old grandma's devotion to the Lord and my grandpa's Swedish accent as he would bring forth and herald the truth. Joshua was this man who people would remember, not for his accolades in the conquest, but a man who was devoted to the truth and following the words of the living God. In a way in which Moses had done and Abraham had done. You know, you ought to be thankful for a level of godly heritage. And if you here this morning are a first-generation Christian and you have come to faith in the living God and have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, think about the new legacy in which you will point your kids, your grandkids, and children to come. When they think back of your life, they will say, something happened to that man. Something happened to that woman. And they'll find out who, who transformed your life. Joshua was always about leaving this message behind. And it begs a couple of questions that I desire to start with this morning. What kind of message is your life sending to others around you? Do you think much about this as you go out and live your Christian life from day to day? Are you a different kind of person when you leave this place? I often find it interesting the moment happens, and this happened yesterday as a sales individual came to my door and I was outside and they were selling certain things. And immediately, of course, I don't just start with, hi, I'm a pastor. And the person begins to start using all kinds of language. 
And the moment that they find out that you're a Christian or have a, a status of a preacher, I've had this happen for years, people say, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have been using those expletives. It is not to us in which people will answer. It is to God. We have to remind ourselves that the life that we're living is not our own. We, we may make choices in and along the way, but those choices must be consistent with the truths of the living word. And so I would just challenge you to ponder for a moment as you are thinking, maybe take this with you. What kind of message is your life sending to people? Is your life sending some kind of a mixed message? Some kind of lip service mentality that you can say all the kind of Christian things to Christian people, and you can go to church and do all of those kind of things. But what is, who are you when you leave here? I'll tell you where you'll find the real people. It's on social media. When everyone's eyes are taken away and the collective groups bears no sense of accountability of what you say, you begin to find out, oh, that's how they talk. That's what they endorse. These are the things where they go. And it's so ironic that in, in our day and age that this reality is, is that we publicize our entire lives. I always find it comical on various components and it still gets me to this day if I'm with somebody and I'm trying to have a conversation and they're taking their picture of their meal to post on Instagram. Like, I thought we were having this wonderful dialogue. Clearly, the broccoli was more impressive than the conversation. We have to be peoples whose lives are so committed to the truth that there is no mixed message that is sent to, to the people that are around us, to our wives, to our husbands, to our children, to our grandchildren, in our workplace, to those that we lead. Every place we go, we are called to be devoted and leave a legacy of godliness. And this is where our emphasis will be this morning that godly leaders look to leave a legacy of godliness. Oftentimes we only think about the concept of leaving a legacy only at the point when someone gets to where Joshua was, like in Joshua 23, when it says a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. We think about this reality of reflection back on the life in which people have lived and how people remember them. But you know, leaving a legacy is, is, yes, you get there at the end of your life looking back, but you realize you have a lot of moments of closure over the course of your life. Portions of that journey, seasons of your life that come to a conclusion and people at the end of those conclusions look back on lives that they have either been around and rubbed shoulders with and they remember certain things. You know that because if you've ever been to a, a, a high school reunion and everybody around there is reminiscing about who they were. In fact, a good majority of them, 10 to 15 years later, it's like they never left high school. Have you noticed that? They're just 40-year-old high schoolers. Because our life so mirrors and models the reality that the world is all about the fun and enjoyment 
and the people that you get to hang around with. Those are all wonderful blessings, but for so many, they miss the reality of godliness. You know what, for you who are here, perhaps you have, you've been in a college ministry or a youth ministry, and you've traveled alongside and journeyed alongside other people, and now you've come to this point in your life, you're a senior in high school. You're like, you thought you'd never get there, and here you are. You're a senior in high school, you're a senior in college, you've been ministering alongside people, and now all of a sudden you're transitioning to your, your life into a different season. Can I just ask you, what will people remember about their journey when they rub shoulders with you? It should concern you. You should be thinking to yourself, how will I devote myself to the next generation of people, whether that pe- those people are in your home, in your youth, in your ministry, wherever it happens to be, you must be devoted to godliness. People ought to be able to learn what devotion is supposed to look like because that is what God has called us to. If you're here and you're an elder or a deacon who have been called by the church At the tenure of your service to the body of Christ, will people remember, oh my goodness, that cantankerous person who never wanted to serve, how did we put him in this position? Or will they remember a man who is devoted to service to the body wherever it's needed? What if you're a father and a mother? What will your children say as they grow up and they look back? or your grandchildren, or another church member, or an employee, or your individual who you're working side by side with, wherever you may find yourself. In all of these places, take your journey in the season of your life so serious that when God calls you to a different season, it's the testimony of your godliness and the direction of your life that calls people to wonder there's something more important to living this life than just doing what they were doing. They saw me as important. They saw me in the crowd and they came and befriended me. They wanted to demonstrate the mercy and grace of God through whatever season of life they happened to be in. That kind of life and life trajectory is the life that God has called us to live that will leave a legacy of godliness in a way that people won't say, oh my, and they'll Look at and fill in your name in that blank. They're going to question to themselves, why, did, why were they so kind? Why were they such a hard worker? Why did they never miss? Why could we always find this person serving in the church? God wants that testimony from each and every one of us. He does not look at our lives in the life of the assembly as some people where you got just this small grouping of people who are, on, who are in the game And then everybody else is to just sit on the sideline and watch and enjoy and cheer everybody else on. Christian, you've got to get in the game. You've got to get serious to make sure that you're leaving the kind of legacy that God would call you to live, one of godliness. Well, how do leaders do that? Well, one of the ways in which they do this is they recognize things that other people don't seem to recognize. This is what makes leaders leaders, by the way. Leaders walk around and they don't just all of a sudden become a leader because all of a sudden one day they woke up, woke up and said, 
I'm gonna get myself a following. They're a leader because their life has been tested to a degree that they notice that their life's trajectory is about godliness. This is why in 1 Timothy, for both the, the, the situation of an elder and a deacon, there are spiritual qualifications. There are spiritual elements that every person who comes into that position must have. They recognize certain things. Perhaps you aspire to a level of that calling. Pay attention to what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3. Pay attention to godliness. He says it so often in the book of 1 Timothy. Bodily exercise profits little, but godliness profits much. And in a culture like ours, it couldn't be so drastically different. I swear that verse has been flipped on its head that godliness means little, and bodily exercise profits much. We get so infatuated with the outside appearance that we fail to reflect and understand that the thing that we'll be held accountable for is who we are on the inside. I don't get this picture in any sense of the Bible at all that when you stand before the Lord, all of a sudden, he's gonna look at your efforts of your bodily chiseling and go, wow, that's impressive. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how much you can bench press. I don't care how much you can deadlift. It won't matter at the end of your life if there is no godly pursuit and a changed heart through repentance and faith. It will mean nothing to you. Focus on the things that matters. That's why leaders can recognize this. Notice in Joshua 23, verse three, and he says, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. Here's what a leader does. They recognize that God is at work in redemptive history to do things that no human being could ever do. He's doing it. We are recognizing it and trying to appreciate it. We recognize these that in our desire to leave a godly legacy, that leaders who aspire to this are witnesses of God's goodness. I love what Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 24 says. Listen to what it says. Moses says this, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our, for our good always, that he might preserve us as we are this day. See, leaders recognize the goodness of God. Leaders try to reflect and get the people that are around them to reflect on God's goodness through the portion of your life. You and I just didn't end up at the chapel. God's sovereign orchestration of all the things in the world brought this body of people together. For what purpose? to help one another serve the King of Kings, to glorify his name, to be accountable to one another, so that if we ever think to ourselves, I think I'm gonna veer to the right or to the left, that somebody goes, wait a minute, and we're reeling them back in. That's not the life that you're gonna find value and purpose and meaning in. It, his commands, Christian, please recognize this. Underline it, circle it in this statement of Joshua 23, verse three. It is for our good 
You realize he sets boundaries not because he needs the boundaries. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely wise. Why would he then disperse this kind of revelation? Because we are so sinful. On so many ways, we look at the boundaries and we think, you know, that doesn't say dead end. <laughs> like, I'm going to keep going. God wants us to recognize that it is for our sake that he sets these boundaries. He puts limitations. He gives us principles to live by. When you and I don't focus on them, we put ourselves in danger. We must recognize God's redemptive work, his goodness, and that we ourselves are witnesses of the power and strength of God. This is, was, was what Joshua tried to remind the people of in his dying days. When he said something like, a long time afterward, even the reference point of time, I would generally tend to say this doesn't reflect all the way back to the beginning of Joshua before the conquest happened. This is in reference to probably Joshua 12 and 13, where all of a sudden it's stated, and Joshua was old and advanced in years. And God says, disperse the land. Make sure everybody has their allotment before you're done. And then even a long time after the land had been settled, you remember, Caleb was asking for Hebron when he was 80, and then Joshua dispersed the land, and a long time after he dispersed it, now Joshua's life was coming to an end. We are witnesses of his power. These people, these Israelites, saw the walls of Jericho fall. They saw what it was like when someone disobeyed God's commands like Achan and took something of the devoted things that didn't belong to them, they understood what it was like to not consult God. They could remember when the elders would be called together and all of a sudden, this man that Joshua met, this theophany of God was standing there saying, I am for God. And Joshua was saying, remember God's power and strength. He will fight for you, don't be afraid. In Joshua 4 and 5, you notice this recalling of the recognition. He says, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God has promised you. The recognition of all of these promises of God ought to be one thing that you cling to, that your hope is invested in. No Christian should, we, we shouldn't be tempted to get to points where we say, you know what, I don't think there is a life that's worth living out there. No, there is a life that is worth living out there. But that life pursuit must be shaped by godliness and not by worldliness. If you go after what the world wants you to go after, if you fall prey to the trap of everything that you are, are fed on a, on, a, on a weekly basis from the news and the magazines and all the different books in the world, you will find yourself being more like the world than you are being like Christ. Guard yourself. Recognize that God has sustained you. He drew you to salvation. He cared for you. Since that point, he has protected you. He has protected from you and your family. He has called you. 
to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. This is so reminiscent of what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter two, when he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You may ask yourself, why does pastor always get on these things in the world? Because God calls us to be different than the world. God calls us to recognize evil and good so that we recognize that there is a God who stands in moral judgment over all of humanity of all time. And we are not better than any one of those people in which you see choosing various components of sinful activity in their life. You and I are not better. We once lived by and were very partakers of and have the same nature as they have. And we're children of wrath. And out of his kindness, he has plucked you out of the depths and snatches of eternity in hell forever by the gracious work of a son who cared to sacrifice his life so that you and I could be freed from our sin. We no longer were then, were, were, we were once children of wrath, but now we have been set free. We are no longer condemned. The fact that he looks at me through the, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's not who I was. That's who he has made me to be. And it wasn't because of something I did or some qualities I have or anything you did or any qualities you have. He snatched you from the pit of hell because he wanted to demonstrate to people around you the gracious, loving kindness of God. And that anybody that you know who doesn't have this can have what you have. And you can direct them there. Leaders recognize this, but they don't just stay here. These are people who, once they begin to recognize these things, they remain in the truth. Leaders remain faithful even when other people go astray. So often in Joshua's life, I, I can only imagine for he and Caleb that reminiscent reality of Numbers 13 and 14 on the brink of embracing the promised land. And two spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, let's go. And 10 of them said, we can't do it. These men remained faithful when everyone else turned a blind eye to the kindness and goodness of God who heard their cries and weeping in the land of Egypt and sent Moses to deliver them by the mighty hand of God. Joshua and Caleb continue to remain faithful. And I'll tell you what, the reason why we can come to a Joshua 23 and 24 in his farewell address is because Joshua never took his eye off what was most important. God was most important. Didn't mean that he, would, he didn't fail at times. It didn't mean that he was a perfect Christian. It didn't mean that you get done with the end of the, uh, the, the book of study of, of the book of Joshua and say, I wanna be Joshua. No, Joshua would tell you, don't be Joshua. Be better than Joshua. Be godlier than Joshua. Be wiser than Joshua was. 
His life is, was a living testimony to the people that they, the predominant component of his life was marked by a pursuit of following after and faithfulness to his God. That's what leaders do. He called his people never to forget Israel's mission in the land. There was always the mission of the people of Israel. And even if you were to go back, this is something interesting. Exodus chapter 12, verse 38. It says this very short statement. It says this, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. See, the people of Israel were always called to live. Even the people who left Egypt, who believed what they believed. They were living amongst the people of Israel. Joshua knew that the people of Israel were called as a missional entity to say, show God to the world. Abraham was called to that same reality in Genesis 12, where the very end of the Abrahamic covenant and says, in him, in Abraham, all the world would be blessed. Joshua reminds them in Joshua chapter four, Right after one of these situations in the conquest, he says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Christian, is that why you live your life? Is that why you do what you do? Is that why you wake up on Monday morning and live the life you live? It's so that people may know the might and grace and kindness of the living God and that your life would just be some living testimony or a signpost for other people as they see it saying, God, that way, <laughs> go there. Purpose, meaning, hope, satisfaction. Because if you're not living that way, you will be saddened. You will not be leaving a legacy of godliness that God will say, well done. It is our duty as Christians to live these kind of lives. And you notice in Joshua chapter 23, uh, verse 6 particularly, as we think about this, notice what he says. He says, therefore, be very strong and keep and uh, strong to keep and do all that is written. It's not like we haven't heard that statement before, have we? Be very strong. Last week it was be very careful. Be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning, not turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. Well, be strong and do what? Christian, it says, be strong to keep it. But that doesn't mean, by the way, that all of a sudden somehow the idea of keeping it means you own a Bible and it sits on your shelf. Oh, I keep the word. I keep it on the shelf. <laughs> and I never get it out of there. No, keep has the connotation of listen within the intent to obey. That was always the idea, whether the words translated keep, whether the word in Proverbs 4 is translated guard, keep walls around, it is the idea that you are reading, listening, growing, learning the revelation of God with the intent to allow it to transform your life. That's what leaders do. That's what a pursuit of godliness does. They read the Bible with a certain kind of intent, the intent of transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And once they do that, they, they become committed to do, a, to do this thing, to not to turn aside from it to the right or to the left. That's what they call you to do. And it couldn't be more paramount in the life of the people of Israel in the conquest to make sure they were heeding this 
principle that Joshua would leave behind. Let me challenge you. Don't ever fall prey to believing that there is another source of truth. Another source other than the Bible that is more sufficient, more sophisticated, more scientific, more academic, more intellectual. This is what he gave us. And what he gave us is completely sufficient for all things in in practice of life and godliness. There is no other source. There is no other parent magazine that you have to look for. And all of a sudden, 2024, that all of a sudden will tell you that everything you did in the past years was all bad and you shouldn't feed your kids that way. We've got something new. Do you notice that everything is something new? Pursue godliness. There there is no other source. You're not gonna get to heaven and he's not gonna say to you, oh, I forgot to give you this book, this other book. It's all right here. If we pay attention to it and we trust it with all our heart and we live by it and we allow it to transform us from the inside out, we will not only recognize these truths, but we will be a person who remains in them. We will be the people that we will become people like Joshua had called those people of Israel to become, strong and courageous. And if you haven't noticed, in a culture like ours, as always has been the case in every culture, God wants strong and courageous Christians. People who will speak up when others will not. People who will stand for things that God says is right when others will turn a blind eye to them. Injustices, murder, all kinds of ways in systems of the world that are set out in trajectory to be against the living God. Courageous People who love the Lord their God with all their heart take notice and they recognize God's power and their devotion to the word and they desire to remain in it. But Christian, this is part of something you and I have to choose to continue to remember and embrace in activity. This is not something I just want you to come on Sunday and go, well, he's talking about that obedience thing again. We've got to go out and make a deliberate effort of the mind and heart and activity to be the way God wants us to be. We have to be people who are filled with faithfulness. Well, here's one of the ways that we're called to do that if we're gonna leave a godly legacy is we have to resist. This is not resist and don't hear, call up to arms because we're in the conquest. Resist sin, In your life, so often people are willing to call out the sin in everybody's life but their own. They're willing to look at everybody's speck in their eye while they've got a couple of beams or more sticking out of their own. We must be people who are paying attention to this uh, in our lives. Notice Joshua 23 and notice in verse 7, he says this, after saying, don't turn from the right or to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. 
For the Lord is driving them out before you, great and strong nations. See, God's desire for us is to not conform to the world. Christians, we must resist a level of conformity. And not just a lack of a reality that we say, I'm not going to be like the world. So often, conformity to the world begins by a level of indifference in the world. We just become indifferent. Oh, I've seen this on TV. I've heard people talk about these components. We have to call what is good, good, and evil, evil. The line of demarcation has become blurred in a culture who is morally depraved, where good is what anyone wants it to be. Truth is whatever anyone wants it to become. Just recently, I was filling out a health survey for, uh, for something going on with uh, my health insurance. And I was walking down through the list of the, of the checklist of things that they were calling me to answer, and I was just baffled by the reality as I go down the list, how old you are, how much you weigh, and then all of a sudden, what, what gender were you assigned at birth? Okay, there was two options. I can, I can get on board with that. Because there is only two options. And then it says, what gender do you want to be described as? Now think about that question for a moment. You have the idea of biological order of nature by God's design, and then you have descriptive markers of what you want to be. No matter what anyone else thinks, not even no matter what God says your biology is. And you went down through the list, and I was so struck in fascination that now we have come to a culture where I, I, am, I am forced to have to walk through something, and my kids from generations on will be forced to have to choose between realities. Are you a male? Are you a transgender male? Are you a female? Are you a transgender female? Are you gay? Or are you lesbian? Or, this one struck me, are you two-spirited? Two-spirited. Now that one I haven't heard. The reality is what you can see in the culture is the culture is wanting to align itself with what anyone wants to say and what anyone wants to describe. And it ought to catch your eye that it's very, uh, it's very predictable of a depraved culture that they would call people to do and choose sinful acts because they're not satisfied with doing them alone. This is exactly what Romans 1.31 says. They find other people to agree. Christians, this is hard. Oftentimes people think to ourselves, oh, we can't talk about that kind of stuff. We are called to live lives that will call good good and evil evil and that doesn't mean that we are calling people to do evil things by recognizing what God's standard of biology is. We are called to resist these kinds of mechanisms in a way that we teach our children that God has a designed order. God loves people and has created them in a very particular way, in a way that is very good a way that is complementary, a way that he's designed cultures to flourish. But you might be thinking to yourself, you know what? Well, that just seems like a lot of hatred. 
See, if we don't understand that people's choices have consequences, then what are we doing as Christians if we're not saying, listen, we're not, we're not calling people to hatred communication. What we're calling people to is to be honest with what God's word says. And you know what? It's not against the culture by which they resist. It's against God that people resist. They want to do their own thing. God calls them, don't mix with these nations. Don't mix with the world. Don't conform to the world. Should be reminiscent of Romans 12. And do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't allow yourself to fall prey to exalting the God of this world. To trusting in the false gods that people will say you will find satisfaction in. Don't serve these false gods by allowing your time and your energy and all of your mental capacities of your home and your life to revolve around the things that the world says matters more than what God says matters. You've got to guard yourself. Don't worship false gods. Yes, we are still struggling even in our current day with levels of idolatry, even amongst Christian people. And when we call out sin, and when we think about it in the life of the conquest, remember, we ourselves are equally responsible and held to the same standard in which we call other people to. Just like when Achan, being part of Israel, defied what God said, he was held accountable, and so will we be held accountable. What things in the world are you tempted to enjoy too much? Where are you tempted to compromise God's standards? So easy to have this happen over time. But if you don't think about it, you'll never come to a conclusion of the areas in your life where you need to start resisting. Compromise is always a level where it begins, and then it starts to continue down a pathway where godliness becomes in the, uh, a sense of which you don't even remember what that is anymore because you're so infatuated with the world. Any of us could fall prey to that. We begin to notice it when all of a sudden we, we no longer read our Bible, we no longer come to church, we no longer serve, we no longer care about Christian people, we no longer care about our Christian duties as a man or as a father, as a husband, as a wife. Don't compromise with the standards that God has given to you. We often see this fall prey in areas of music, do we not? I'm so thankful for our worship team and for Pastor Jeff, who deliberately makes an effort to guide our minds to the truths of the living God in song. But I wonder how often we fail to even ask ourselves a question like this. Does the music that we listen to exalt God's standards of the world's? Yes, parent, that means you actually have to go through the music choices and lists of your children on their phone and violate that privilege that they have and start deleting things if they're listening to things that are ungodly. And you're gonna have to listen, perhaps, to your children say, how dare you? How dare you not? We must stand for the truth, even down to the very things that we listen to. And so often I find that an area of compromise becomes in the digestion of the musical efforts of the world. So much has been put to song. And that's not to say that everything in the world that they've put there is bad. So don't hear me say that. But so much of it reflects the ideology of the world. 
what the world loves, what the world chooses, how the world views relationships. It doesn't matter if it's pop, rap, country, you name it, but I can tell you what, there's a distortion of truth when people aren't coming from a framework of a biblical worldview. You better be careful because this is often where it begins to start coming in and you don't even really see it. Be mindful of this. Very interesting as I was studying for this particular sermon, there was a survey done by the Barna Group, which at the end of the year uh, grabs various responses to various surveys that they've done throughout the year. And it's, it's remarkable that they would make a statement in reality as they come to the conclusion, and this was back in 2006, by the way, that Christian people often feel very good about being a Christian, but the, the results of the survey demonstrated that their activity as a Christian had waned so much that they would even, in the Barner group, describe it as lukewarm. They feel good about the faith, but the activities of the faith were virtually non-existent for most people. And that was in 2006. I wonder where, if they were to do that today, what kind of committed group they would see as Christian people. We must demonstrate this in our own hearts so that we remember what God calls us to remember. And in the latter part of this particular book, he says, for the Lord has driven them out before you, great and strong nations. As for you, no man has been able to stand before you this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Remember, God is the one who holds all people, believers and unbelievers, responsible. If you and I start, stop paying attention to the things of God and then convince ourselves that we're going to be blessed by God for doing the things against God, we are sadly mistaken. We must realize and remember this truth that trusting is about loyalty. Trust, trust in the strength of God to deliver. Yes, we should pray for a sense of revival amongst the nation. Don't just watch everything and all of a sudden say, there is no hope. There is hope. It's Jesus. Don't forget that. Yes, he can make bad situations turn good because he's good. He can work with stubborn, rebellious hearts in a way that no one else can. That person in your mind who you think, oh, they're never gonna accept Jesus. Guess what? The spirit of God is more powerful than their stubborn rebellion. Don't forget that as you are called to share this truth of the gospel. Gospel, be loyal to the God that you serve. Don't just go serve everything and anything that the world says you should spend your time and energy and value. Spend it on the things that God says you should value. You know, it even goes down to the very degree that I think is very important for us to realize 
Did you notice this in the text? Don't make marriages with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. If you are thinking about a relationship and you are saying to yourself, I think this is a good idea, and you ask yourself, are they a believer? And you, you come to the conclusion, the answer is no. What are you doing? This will destroy the things that God has called you to embrace in godliness. This will lead you down a path that, is, that, that you will always be destroyed. You will be hurt by this. He calls them, don't mix and conform to the things down to the very marriages that we claim to have or pursue. God gives instruction for every single facet of our lives. He wants us to remember his goodness so that we don't confuse the value system of the world with the value system of God. That we remember that not one of God's promises have ever, ever failed. Do you notice this? At the very end of the book, he says in verse 16, in verse number 16 and following, he says, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. And just earlier than that, he said, there's not one thing that God promised that he hasn't brought to pass. And then he says that, which means if we don't follow his ways, there are serious ramifications. Christians, members at the chapel, we must unite over godliness. Don't make preferences more than they ought to be. Make godliness what it needs to be. The more that you and I focus on the things that matter, you and I can live a life that is focused on leaving a legacy of godliness for generations to come until whenever Christ comes back and he raptures us all to be, to be in heaven with him. And that, man, that is gonna be a glorious day. But do you realize that there will be people who will be left behind who will say, where did all these people from the chapel that I knew, where have they gone? Why don't they worship on Sunday anymore? because we're gone and we are never coming back and we are forever going to be at rest with the Lord and yet they will remember perhaps the conversation that they had with you or with me or somebody from the chapel and they'll remember their lives. I remember something was different about all these people. Is this coincidental? I think not. God is calm, his coming to call us home. Never forget, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Our goal as Christians is to leave a legacy of godliness so that we are conveying and pursuing after the things that matter and are valued by God. The more we pursue this, the more God is glorified the more we are satisfied in our lives and have purpose and meaning. Go, share this truth with people. Yes, you will rub shoulders with people who are describing themselves in all kinds of different ways. That is not because God is against them or God is filled with hatred towards them and neither should you and I be. We should be filled with compassion and mercy. 
looking upon people who don't understand that they have hope in Jesus Christ. Share the hope with them. Live a life of godliness that will help them realize there's something better than pursuing after the way of a man because its end is death and separation. Kind people will share the truth of the gospel of grace. We are called to do this to the culture that we live in. No matter how despicable it comes, no matter what the choices may be, live a life of godliness. Get before the end of, the, your, end of your life, stand before the Lord and be able to have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you do for us. Lord, we read these texts of scripture this morning recognizing that we have done nothing in our own efforts to deserve the kind of saving grace that you have so freely given to us in your son. Lord, we're before you knowing we must remain and resist and remember the things of God because without them, we are tempted to conform to the patterns of this world. Lord, create a strength in us as believers, create a strength in the chapel. Lord, that we will, we will follow you. We will be faithful to you till the end of our days, that as people meet people from this church, that they will see some godly characteristic because they have devoted their lives to you. Strengthen each and every young person, each and every older person, and everywhere in between for the life that you've called them to live in the season that you've called them to live it. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. We need you. Lord, come. Take us home to be with you. Save as many souls as possible before you come. In your name we pray. Amen.